Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. As technology has progressed, we've also seen emerging concerns for freedom of speech and privacy. It was my distinct privilege to talk today to Cindy Cohen, who has spent the last 30 years defending individual liberties in the digital space. She is the executive director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the leading nonprofit organization, ensuring that technology supports freedom, justice, and innovation for all people. She started her career as a civil litigator in private practice, where she handled various cases related to technology. Then, in 1993, the EFF offered her the opportunity to serve as outside lead attorney in an important and pivotal case, Bernstein versus Department of Justice, the successful First Amendment challenge to the U.S. export restrictions on cryptography. Today, she handles legal matters involving NSA spying, platform censorship, and surveillance technologies, among other issues. Cindy has received an enormous number of awards and honors for her work. For example, in 2020, she was included in the nonprofit Times Power and Influence Top 50 list, honoring movers and shakers. In today's discussion, Cindy talks about the fascinating origins of the EFF, how she became involved in human rights work, how her practice has evolved over the years, and her strategies for protecting people's privacy. As I said, it was a privilege talking to her, and I appreciate her making the time for us. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. Hi, Cindy. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. I told you there'd be a countdown. We were waiting for it. Well, thank you for joining. I really appreciate you making the time. You're executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF. For our listeners, I suspect a lot of our listeners know about the EFF, but for those that don't, Sort of talk a little bit about its history and what it does and, and the role it plays in protecting our electronic rights. Yeah, so EFF is the largest and the oldest digital rights organization. We were founded in 1990, so we predate the World Wide Web by a few years. And the organization was founded by three visionaries who kind of saw that when the rest of us got access to this technology, that kind of only people in academic or scientific spheres really had access to, that when the rest of us, when we democratized access to this information, we were going to have a series of civil liberties issues around our free speech, our privacy, our relationship with the government online. And and they were spurred to found EFF because of a series of police or law enforcement raids on people who are doing early bulletin board, you know, active on early bulletin boards. Early bulletin boards were like an early kind of social networking type tool where people could talk to each other and share information online. And and the government kind of overreacted uh, a couple of times and raided people's houses, took all their computers, nearly killed a little business called Steve Jackson Games, which is a gaming business based in Austin. And the organization was founded originally to make sure that people who are facing these kinds of raids had access to lawyers And what ultimately happens is in the early 90s, they couldn't find very many lawyers who knew very much about the internet and these digital technologies. And so the organization started um, hiring them and built our own internal team. But it also always had an eye towards, you know, what was policy and law going to be like for the rest of us when we got online? It was founded by this specific acute event where we had to 
sue the Secret Service over an overbroad raid on a little game company. That was the first big EFF case, but it always had a broader perspective. And we've really grown along with the internet. At this point, we're about 100 people, still mainly lawyers. And our job is to make sure that, you know, technology supports, you know, freedom, justice, and innovation for all the people of the world. And what that really means is where we try to make sure that when you go online, your rights go with you. Yeah, that's sort of an amazing origin story, isn't it? I, I was around in 1990 and practicing law. And for those of us there at the time, it was like, what is this internet thing people are talking about? And yet the founders of EFF are not thinking not just about that, but about what's coming down the road. Yeah, I mean, they were really visionaries. It's John Gilmore, Mitch Kapoor, and uh, uh, John Perry Barlow were the kind of three core funders. Steve Wozniak was also involved early on and gave some of the first funding for the organization. So a couple of those are pretty familiar names if you've been hanging around in tech or or maybe Grateful Dead circles. But they really came <laughs> together uh, around this idea that, you know, I mean, I think there is sometimes a conversation about tech utopianism that somehow in the 90s, all the people involved in technology thought things were going to be magically perfect when we all had technology. And I think that's really unfair. It's certainly unfair to the founders of EFF because you don't found an organization aimed at fighting for your rights and staffing up with lawyers and technologists and activists to fight for your rights if you think everything's going to be magically perfect. So one of the things that kind of galls me sometimes is that John Perry Barlow and the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, which is one of the first documents that really mobilized a lot of people to thinking about freedom online. A little later, I think 96 or 98 is, is when he wrote that. No, it was a little earlier. My apologies. Um, but, you know, that, that Barlow is held up as if he is this techno-utopian when Barlow had a key role in founding an organization that has been fighting hard for your rights the entire time before most people knew about the Internet. And you, you don't do that if you think things are magically going to be perfect. So um, it's one of my little pet peeves that, uh, that you know, and I, I'm not sure how Barlow would feel about that. He's passed away now and he tended to like any attention uh, regardless. <laughs> um, but for me anyway, you know, my whole career is spent in this space where we're trying to make sure that technology supports people. And you wouldn't need that if people in the early internet were really as utopian as they sometimes get painted today. Let's talk a little bit about your career before getting into some of the substantive issues. So an English major from Iowa becomes one of the leading digital rights lawyers in the world. How does that happen? <laughs> well, I mean, for people who are early in their legal careers, the one thing I would say is keep your mind open, right? Don't think you have to land narrowly on what you're going to do uh, and stick with it, right? And, you know, for me, I met, you know, kind of accidentally some of these early internet people, including John Gilmore. And I was an English major for sure, but I also took human rights classes even back at the University of Iowa um, and was really interested in international human rights. And I spent time in Geneva working uh, at the United Nations. So when I met some- That must have been, a, not to interrupt you, but that must have been an amazing experience for a young lawyer. It was pretty crazy because I'm, I'm a little older now. It was 1989. So the Berlin Wall fell when I was in Geneva. So this oh was a time goodness. of huge change in terms of the international- thinking about human rights and people's rights. And, and it was a time where there was huge change, you know, after many, many years of thinking there could be no change, suddenly there were huge changes. And, and, um, and I was lucky enough to be sitting in a place where, you know, you could really see and feel them. So I came back to San Francisco where I'd spent a summer and I really accidentally ran into some of these um, early tech guys. 
And I became fascinated with the questions that they were wrestling with, which is what's the world going to look like when everybody has access to this technology that they had access to? And I thought it would be fun and interesting to get involved in, you know, kind of putting a marker down on pro-human rights, pro-civil rights, civil liberties and civil rights in this new age with a pretty clear-eyed view that we were going to have to fight these fights because every time there's been a big technological change, the forces of repression want to claim it for themselves and use it to double down on authoritarianism or repression. And of course, we're living in in a time where that's very active for a lot of us. And the forces of freedom and justice have to fight as well. On the other side, they have to show up and they have to make these fights. So I kind of got lucky in that I had this grounding in human rights and the kind of storytelling you learn and, you know, and as an English major, especially at the University of Iowa, which is, a, you know, I've got a grand history of teaching people how to write and read well. It's got a great, great history in there. Yeah, the writers work. So, you know, we used to go to parties at the Vonnegut House. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a place that really reveres good storytelling. And I soaked some of that up, I, I like to think. And then I got into human rights and then I landed in this tech world and began to think about, you know, how we could make sure that there were people fighting for human rights centered future for the digital age. And that's that's kind of what happened about I'm not really a technologist Uh, at this point. I've been around it a long time. So I kind of know my way around hash functions and and the way digital networks work and the stack. But I'm not a coder at any level. I'm really more somebody who is pretty good at translating the technical things to non-technical audiences and especially to judges and policymakers and lawyers. I think I'm, I'm probably stronger and clearer as a translator than really as a, a technologist. And I think that has been helpful. And it was certainly helpful in the early days when we would show up in court or we would show up in a congressman's office. And we actually had to explain really deeply what we were talking about. Uh, you know, now there's, a, you know, a whole flock of people, a huge flock of people who have deep roots, both in the law and technology. And it's been exciting that that gap is much easier to bridge now, but it, it wasn't always so. Yeah, you, you started, if I understand it correctly, with EFF by handling peace litigation for them while you're in private practice. Yep. Which must have been a fascinating, you were a pretty junior lawyer at the time, and yet you're lead counsel on one of the first rights issues around. That's a, it's a great way to start this. Yeah. You know, I would say that had I known that I might've had a little more uh, hesitation, but at the time, you know, we didn't know. Right. And so, uh, you know, honestly, I was at my house um, practicing law at a tiny little, I had been at a mid-sized law firm called Pharrell, LeBron and Martell. And I, I shifted to a tinier law firm called McLaughlin and Surreal because I kind of needed cases I could get my whole arms around rather than sitting in, you know, warehouses doing discovery for times that just didn't suit me. So I moved to a smaller firm that had much smaller cases and, you know, was really getting my feet under me as a lawyer. I'd probably had a couple of small trials. And then I got a call from John Gilmore, who was one of the founders of EFF and a friend of mine at the time. And, and he said, we have um, a math PhD student who's written a computer program and he wants to post it to the internet. Um, and the government says, well, if he, if he does do that, he'll go to jail as an arms dealer. And I said, well, what does it do? Does it blow things up? And he said, no, it keeps things secret. And I said, well, that sounds like a First Amendment problem to me. And he said, us too, do you want to take the case? And um, I said, yes, hung up the phone, turned to my boyfriend at the time, who was also a technologist and said, what's encryption? 
And <laughs> how, how does this work? Uh, and he explained it to me. And ultimately, John and many other people uh, helped me understand it. I went to my little law firm and I said, I think this Internet thing is going to be big. And, and this might be a chance you know, for us to have a voice in the in the early things. And they were I don't think they believed me, um, but they were very nice. And they let me take the case pro bono. It's called Bernstein versus Department of Justice. And it was you know, one of the key levers that helped free up encryption from government regulation and gave us, you know, the possibility of security in the digital world. So you, you're, you're handling uh, some work for the EFF, and at some point you go actually go to work with EFF. You leave private practice to go to work. Why that decision? Yeah, I, we had been working on the crypto case for a long time and we were winning. Uh, I had just pretty much come back from a meeting in Washington, D.C., where we kind of negotiated the terms of surrender for the government. Um, we didn't do the case wasn't the only thing. There were many things going on that led to this, but we were able to get the government to drop things. And we were having so much fun and we had built this incredible team of lawyers. We really worked together well. And the person at EFF who was my contact, the person who was the legal director at the time was a woman named Sherry Steele. And Sherry took me out to dinner and said, I'm going to become the executive director of EFF. Do you want my old job? And I said, I will come if Lee Tien, who had been my colleague in the Bernstein case and really the crucial part of making that case work, I said, well, I'll come if Lee comes. And Sherry started laughing and said, well, I talked to Lee yesterday and he said he'd come if you came. So uh, <laughs> the two of us joined EFF together in September of 2000 and just hit the ground running and just have been working on various things ever since. It's just been a lot of, it's a lot of fun. I think one of the things that is important for lawyers to recognize is that like being on the side of the good guys, you have a lot more fun. You get to work with interesting people. You get to do interesting things. There are interesting puzzles. But you also, you know, it's also, I think, this has always been my maintainer. I'd rather be at the good guys' parties than the bad guys' parties. I think we have more fun. Absolutely. So let, let's sort of look at the 30 years or so you've been involved with EFF in one way or the other. Sort of as you look at it, sort of what issues have you fought over those 30 years that you're continuing to fight? And what's emerged, what's new, and what's different? Obviously, technology has changed dramatically. And the amount of data that's that's out there for people to get is it's exploded over that time period. So so technology has dramatically changed. How have the issues stayed the same or changed? I mean, let's start with what stayed the same because we're in the midst of fights right now all over the world to try to make sure people still have access to strong encryption, uh, which, of course, is where I started. We don't have government claiming the ability to regulate it like it was a tank anymore, but we have governments around the world and right now we're in the thick of a fight in the UK, but there are similar proposals in the United States to try to make it so that anybody who offers you a tool that you can use can break the encryption on it and make sure that they can hand the government or whoever, you know, whatever government access to the plain text. So, you know, essentially building, you know, what do you call it? Backdoor, side door, whatever, basically wanting to make sure that they have a way into whatever you say or do online and that you can't have complete privacy. This is a really bad idea. Um, it's a bad idea as a, on a technical level because, you know, assume that the cops came to your front door and said, we've got a lot of break-ins in the neighborhood. And we want to make sure that you're not a criminal. So we want you to leave your back door open. So just in case you're a criminal, we can always get inside and get access to you and know what you're doing. That sounds like a bad idea. Most people would say, go figure out how to do your job in a different way because this isn't right. 
it's the same thing. They can dress it up in whatever language you want, but nobody has ever built a door that only good guys can use and bad guys cannot use. And every single time that a government tells you that they can do that, you have to look very skeptically because it's just not possible. It's no, no more possible in your house than it is in your digital technology. And the, the people who have been entrusted with this kind of power, they lose information all the time. The National Security Agency, which is supposed to be the most secure in, in the world, has lost access to the data that it collects. It's had infiltrators. It's had people who, insiders, who have leaked information out. So even if they have the best technology in the world, you have to trust all the technology plus all the people in order to have security. And, and you know, I believe privacy is a human right and that being able to have a private conversation in the digital age is part of our human rights. But regardless of what you think about that, it's a security problem. You know, Apple a few years ago famously refused to build a backdoor into iPhones for the FBI. And their argument was as true today as it was then, which is, well, if we build it for you, U.S. government, what are we going to do when China comes and wants access to dissidents? What are we going to do when Turkey comes and wants access to dissidents? You can't build a door and only ensure that good guys will ever use it. So we're still fighting the same fight now that I started in in the 1990s. The permutations changed for a while. It was about terrorism. Now it's about protecting the children. The last time I heard somebody talk about it, they were talking about fentanyl. It doesn't, you know, the the reasons why they need access can change over time. But the fundamental thing that they're asking for is to make sure that you can't have a private conversation online. And I think that's that's wrong and dangerous for us. So that's the same. Given all of the recent hacks and, and exposure of private data have increased exponentially over the last few years and, and continue. Seems like every day you read about some organization has gotten hacked into it. From a support from the public viewpoint, has that increased support for the position you're taking? I mean, I think that our position has always made common sense to people who understand how technology works. I think that people who don't quite and, and believe in some magical thinking, you know, they get swayed by the harms. And I, I, I understand that. I mean, nobody wants to see children abused. Nobody wants to support terrorist attacks. The question is whether this particular technique and tool denying all the rest of us privacy is the right tool for the job or whether there are other tools that don't create security risks for the rest of us. So I think people, if you can sit down and talk to them, people tend to get it. I think technologists get it pretty obviously because they understand this. You know, anybody who understands about security understands this, you know, kind of fundamental problem of no, no such thing as a good guy's only door into uh, technologies. But I think that people get swayed by the harms. And I, I'm sympathetic to that. I, it, it's hard to have a conversation that says, and lawyers have to do this a lot of time, right? Just because there's a harm doesn't mean that every remedy is the right remedy. And sometimes we take remedies and we put them off the table because they're not, they're either not going to work or they cause collateral problems. But differentiating between the harm and the remedy being proposed is something that is hard sometimes for people to get their mind around. And so, you you know, we end up getting painted sometimes as if we don't care about children or we don't care about terrorists. And that's not true at all. It's, it's that just because you've got a hammer doesn't mean every problem is a nail. And separating kind of those kinds of things is where the struggle is. But I do find it very weird, the cognitive dissonance, right? You have people talking about cybersecurity, very serious people with, you know, stars and bars on their chest, talking about the need to have more cybersecurity and then turning around. And I wouldn't say promoting 
backdoors, but not stopping people who are promoting backdoors. What, what tends to happen is national security people, people who think about that kind of security, tend to be pro-encryption. People like law enforcement, like the FBI and, and local police who are interested in solving crimes tend to be anti-encryption. And what we need is the people who understand about cybersecurity on this higher level to weigh in and say, look, we understand police that you want your job to be as easy as possible when catching criminals, but this is a bridge too far. You can't make everybody unsafe for that. And so far, they've been way too quiet, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, it's, I'm sitting here thinking as you're sort of describing how the EFF gets painted as being anti-children or anti, that's a challenge you have to learn to accept if you're a civil rights organization. That's got to be, though, a challenge to the psyches of the people in the organization to be painted as, you know, supporting evildoers when that's not at all what you're doing. Yeah, it, it is. I think that it's one of the things that people have to come to terms with and also share, right? It's something where working with a team, not all by yourself, where you you really do have access. We really do have access to people who are been in the trenches on a lot of these things and who, you know, not only understand the policy position, but have tried to help women get out of domestic violence situations where they're being spied on by their husbands. Having a clearer understanding of how this this idea of a backdoor, this idea of standing strong on security actually plays out in protecting real people is really important because the policy debates, people sling mud, lots of people stand up and talk in the policy debates who don't have real world experience with these kinds of things. And so, you you know, you just have to really be grounded in, you know, not just your philosophy, but the real world of people who you help. And I've got a human rights background. I have helped people all around the world who are dissidents try to get their voice out I have very strong views about censorship and the role that censorship strategies play based upon that experience and also security, right? Helping people around the world try to to stay safe when the adversary that they're facing is their own government. And so you you kind of, you know, I think you just have a good grounding in like the real world people who you either are, and of course, EFFers have been targeted directly. My staff has been targeted directly, but also people around the world who you're standing up to help and their issues and and why the kind of public noise um, that the law enforcement or other people can stir up around things is just not grounded in reality. Absolutely. So that issues remain the same. Yes. What issues have emerged? Well, I think in the 1990s, we really were facing a situation in which governments were the central player in our rights online and in how things worked online. You know, we have moved into, especially starting from the early 2000s, which, you know, EFF was 10 years old by then, into a situation where we really have to start thinking about companies and the roles that companies are playing. And specifically for EFF, the companies, you know, the emergent, the kind of winning business model of the surveillance business model and what effect that was having on people's rights, and really take seriously some of the problems that were emerging from that, from the consolidation of power, so that now we have, you know, the five big tech companies that really control huge amounts of what we do and see online, um, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft. GAFM is what some people call them, um, and, and, and the power that they have, um, and really kind of take on the, that corporate side. I think the other huge thing that's changed is you know, the diversity of people online and their different needs. You know, the internet of the 90s was overwhelmingly highly educated, generally white, generally male people who were, you know, had access to resources. The internet is not that anymore. 
those people are, are and ought to be a minority of people who are online and certainly who need the protections that we're doing. And so you have to shift your approach to recognize the diversity of people who need protection, right? The, the EFF supports, you know, freedom, justice, and innovation for all the people of the world, not all the people who went to MIT. And so that requires broadening both, you know, who we are and what issues we think about, but also, you know, the approaches because the, they, they may not be the same. So I would say all of those have happened over the last, you know, since, you know, kind of slowly over time and then hugely. So that's, you know, required us to add, you know, new pieces of the organization, but also new approaches and, and ways of thinking about it. So we're, as I said, we're still majority lawyers. Uh, now we have an entire tech team of technologists and that tech team not only advises the lawyers, which is kind of how they started out, but we build technologies now at EFF. We build, we're part of a huge consortium that has encrypted the web called Let's Encrypt. And we build something called CertBot that helps people who have websites make a, offer a more secure, free and easy to install, more secure way to surf the web. We have a plugin for Chrome and Firefox called Privacy Badger that help blocks third-party cookies that is expressly aimed at the surveillance business model. So we have our technical teams. We have a whole team of activists. We have an international group. And then, of course, we have our core lawyers. So we, we've grown both in the scope of the issues that we address and in the kind of tools that we use to address them. I was thinking about your comment about the diversity, the increased diversity of users. One segment of that are kids. In the 90s when we started, you're right, it was affluent, mostly white, mostly men. Now kids grow up being digital natives. They live, they live their lives online and they, has that raised a different dimension for these issues? Has it caused different concerns to arise? Perhaps not. I'm, I'm just noodling. Well, I think right now we're in a moment where, you know, doing something for the children is the excuse de jour for censorship, for surveillance, for all sorts of bad ideas, honestly, that, that EFF is having to bat down. You know, historically, honestly, even in the 90s, the Internet was a place for kids who didn't fit in where they lived to get access to community and resources and support. To me, this is one of the highest and best early-ish uses of the internet. It was to help, especially kids, um, a lot of LGBT kids, but also other kids who really didn't fit in where they were growing up to find places where they could be safe, where they could have a community. Famously, of course, kind of geeky, nerdy kids who were otherwise bullied in their towns. And this, the internet was a place where they could find other geeky, nerdy kids. Um, and that's, I think, especially true for kids of color you know, working with a lot of kids of color who were kind of nerdy and not sportsy or otherwise didn't fit into their communities. Having the internet as a way to find other people like you and support has been a lifeline. Uh, my friend Dana Boyd wrote a whole book about this called It's Complicated. And honestly, this is from the 90s. This is the late 90s. And I think the internet continues to be this. Even the research that has recently come out about social media and the harms that social media can cause has come out both saying that social media can cause harm for some kids, but for kids that don't fit in where they are, social media can be a lifeline. And both of these things are true. And I think as a society, we have to wrestle with that. We have to come up with strategies and approaches that protect the kids who their online experience is actually really helpful to them and supportive, 
while we also protect the kids whose online experience can be very problematic and harmful. And um, right now, you know, as a society, we're not very good at holding two thoughts at the same time. I was going to say, you know, yeah, we're, we're so good at sort of wrestling with difficult issues calmly and rationally and having a discourse to come to a solution. This came up in a, in a you know, Apple wanted to do uh, a few, they, they dropped this plan, thank God, and we were able to help convince them to drop it. But they wanted to do client-side scanning, which meant, you know, scanning kids' phones, actually everyone's phones, and reporting to kids' parents if they found inappropriate material on a kid's phone. They wanted, that was one of the things that they were claiming that they wanted to do client-side scanning. And, you know, we were able to help marshal groups that support kids' who are facing violence in their homes, who are facing abusive parents, or who are just facing parents who aren't going to be supportive of who they are. And there are tons of them, right? This is in this time, again, it's not just LGBT kids, but that's a huge piece of the kids that we need to protect, but it, homes with domestic violence and other kinds of things. So we were able to help Apple see that like this plan that they were going to put together was going to put a tremendous number of kids at risk. And that, you know, a one-way ratchet, which is tell parents what kids are doing all the time, was extremely dangerous. And and it's one of the reasons that they dropped it. Now, again, you know, these push for, for scanning and addressing privacy violations on people's devices are still being pushed as a way to help protect children. And I think what's being conveniently overlooked is the people who are going to get harmed by these pushes. They're incredibly nuanced issues, aren't they? Yeah. And it's hard to find the right answer. I mean, I, you know, it's frustrating sometimes as a civil liberties person, you know, you come in and and tell people all the ways in which what they want to do won't work. And it's hard sometimes because, you know, sometimes I have answers, but many times you don't actually have an answer that will quickly and neatly solve the problem that people are wrestling with. All you can do is show up and tell them why the answer that somebody is peddling them isn't a good one. Yeah. That's got to be frustrating because more often than not, the problem they're trying to solve is a real problem. It needs to be solved. I mean, I think that if we actually embrace privacy first answers to a lot of our problems, rather than censorship or privacy, you know, denying things, we can get a long way. A lot of the reason, a lot of the problems that people are suffering right now are because of this surveillance business model. It's because all we are being tracked and our attention monetized everywhere we go. That means that if you're sowing disinformation, you are better able to target the people who are going to be amenable to your lies because you're going to use the same way that people use the ad system to try to target who wants to buy shoes to try to target the people who are vulnerable to your horrible messaging. If we start taking steps to try to protect people's privacy and get rid of this privacy invasive business models, we can shrink a lot of the problems that people are concerned about right now and make them less problematic. I, I don't want to promise that we can solve them because the people who tell you you can solve things on one side are lying and I don't want to lie on the other side. But we can shrink these problems if we think, okay, what's a privacy first strategy? What's that going to get us? What's a censorship resistance strategy? What's that going to get us? And I think we could get a very long way if we turn away from the things that have these huge collateral damages into things that actually support people's rights as strategies to try to get from here to there. Now, similarly, I think that a lot of the problems that people are concerned about with the tech giants right now come from the fact that they are tech giants and they have a surveillance business model, which is why EFF pivoted a few years ago. We pivoted, we added in thinking about competition. 
And how do we increase competition for these bedrock services that people rely on so that people can vote with their feet? So that if, if you don't like Facebook's business model, you don't have to use Facebook or you don't have to use all of Facebook. You can interoperate with Facebook in a way that doesn't make you have to sign on to everything they do. So we've championed this idea, uh, sometimes called adversarial interoperability, as a way to try to build more choices for people and give privacy protective services a, a fighting chance to get a market. It's not like you don't have enough on your plate, but as you look down the road, particularly in a post-generative AI world, the post-pandemic world, are there issues, one of the things EFF has always done is anticipate looking around the corner and, and seeing what, what may happen. Are there one or two things on your agenda that are, that are new, that are of concern to you? that you think is going to be hot in the next year or two? Well, we're definitely going to have a fight over mass surveillance. The mass surveillance um, law, uh, called Section 702, uh, is up for renewal in December. And it's in an interesting political moment because a lot of Republicans who have in the past been pretty reflexively in support of mass surveillance are very concerned as a result of some of the things that happened with Carter Page and, and you know some other things. So we've got an interesting political moment for mass surveillance where we might actually have the political will to scale it back in ways that I think will really benefit all of us. So that's going to definitely be, I mean, traditionally Congress doesn't decide things during their deadline. They kick things down the road. So it's up in December, but we'll see. But I think there is a good chance that we'll see some movement on, on mass surveillance in the United States in the next year. Obviously, there are a lot of people trying to think about what we want to do about artificial intelligence. I think we're going to see a lot of action around in the early days around copyright and copyright law and AI and kind of settle what's fair use and what's not fair use about how these models are, uh, you know, how the, the models are being created and then uh, secondarily how they're being used. I think we're going to continue to see a lot of things around AI. I would say that I think some of the AI stuff is hype. You know, there's nothing that Silicon Valley likes more than hype. You know, last year at this time, people would have only been talking about cryptocurrency. And today at this time, we're talking about AI. I could tell you, I bet by next year, we'll be talking about something else. It doesn't mean AI isn't an important tool, but, you know, I'm not one of the doomers who thinks that AI is going to kill us all. I think that we have very serious problems with the use of artificial intelligence, especially by governments and especially in situations where it's trying to predict human behavior and around issues around access to welfare, access to parole, access to bail. There are these, most of them aren't even full AI. Most of these are just statistical analysis systems or machine learning systems that are being used to try to make decisions about people's future behavior that are tremendously scary and bad and end up reinforcing society's biases. I think those are really important problems, but honestly, that's not why AI is getting the attention it's getting right now. It's getting the attention right now because a few rich guys are scared. And I think that's a really bad way to start to, to think about setting our national conversation. So it's not that there aren't issues. I think there are huge issues and we need to pay attention to them. But I, I, I worry a little bit that we end up using the moniker AI to focus on narrowly on a, on a bunch of things that aren't actually the central problems. And it feels like we're in that moment right now. Fair point. Cindy, we, we run over our time. I appreciate you being so generous with your time and sharing your thoughts. You've had an amazing career. They continue to do amazingly important work with EFF. We'll put it in the show notes, but the people who want to join or contribute to EFF's mission, how do they do that? Yeah, uh, EFF.org is where you can join EFF. Uh, you can sign up for a newsletter and, and keep up on what we're doing or otherwise participate, take action. 
Uh, we have action alerts. So if you want to write your congressman about some of this kind of stuff, there's a there's always something that we're up to. Um, we also have a podcast called How to Fix the Internet, where we try to take some of these issues and think about what the world looks like if we get it right. I feel like we're in a moment right now where many people have lost hope that digital technologies are are anything other than kind of abusive to them. And I don't think we can build a better world unless we can envision it. So so what we intentionally try to do is to take really smart people who are thinking hard about the internet and ask them to give us their vision about what it looks like if we get it right, and then work backwards from that to, you know, how do we address today's problems? And I think it's really, again, I got involved in technology because I think that it could stand for human rights. It could help protect people. And that future is possible for us, but we we need to kick in. Uh, it's not going to magically happen. It didn't magically happen in the 90s, and it's not going to magically happen now. Well, absolutely. Cindy, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.